Roll Out the Barrels? We'll talk with Rotographs researcher and writer Alex Chamberlain about barrels and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. Hey, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 3rd. It's show number 9 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Tuesday Tout Edition for you. We'll talk with Alex Chamberlain, who writes for Rotographs at Fangraphs.com, about correlations between StatCast metrics like barrels and exit velocity with more common hitter metrics. We'll also talk about deserved barrels, spray angle effects, player values versus their ADPs, his boons and banes, and more. It's another big Tuesday Tout Edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We got some barrels to talk about. Let's roll them out and talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday edition, it's part one of our interview with our feature guest expert, Alex Chamberlain from Rotographs. Alex, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. It's your first time. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to be on. Thanks for having me. Before we get going, your Twitter biography says you teach, and I'm quoting here, battle axe lessons. Is that real battle axes, or is it training for guys with mothers-in-law? Uh, <laughs> um, it's neither. It's neither. It's uh, an obscure quote from an obscure uh, uh, online cartoon that is no longer around so it's uh it's just a nugget for anyone who might recognize it and i don't think i only think one person in my lifetime has has recognized it so um it's just it's just to be goofy there's nothing there's nothing behind it the reason i ask is you know joe pisapia right or know of him uh he teaches sword fighting in uh, in his real life, he yeah he teaches actors and stage actors and stuff the to do the moves of sword fights whenever that's called for in a script. He's movies, shows, all kinds of stuff. It's really interesting to talk to him. Yeah, I thought maybe you know in uh, Tell Wars or next time you see Joe, you could uh, compare notes. But I guess that's not going to happen. Uh, one thing we all can compare notes about is uh, how many fantasy drafts uh, are you doing this draft season? Uh, I actually have the list right in front of me. One, two. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, maybe eleven. <clears throat> oh, and then, <clears throat> excuse me, the um, the the great fantasy baseball invitational and Raz Slam. So I think that's anywhere from twelve to thirteen uh, will be my list this year, which is probably about nine too many for me. Um, but you know, we'll see how I do. Are they all kinds of different formats? I joined uh, the Razball thing because it's my first chance to play a points-based system with this uh, best ball format, and I thought it would be interesting to try. But how many different formats are you playing amongst those uh, 12 or 13 different leagues? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, same with me. I'm doing cut lines for the first time, too, with Raz Slam, so uh, never done the best ball. Um, don't expect to be uh, good at it. Uh, you know, if I get smoked, then that's fine. I'm just kind of getting my feet wet and just kind of 
participating. Obviously, I want to win, um, but I'm not expecting to. Um, I have a couple of uh, NFBC leagues, like the traditional OC, the online championship, and that's like the uh, 12-team, 30-man rosters with the FAB. Um, I am going to try the NFBC auction for the first time, and so that's a 15-team uh, auction with traditional FAB. Um, I fancy myself probably better at auction than Snake, so I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to trying that for the first time. Um, I'm going to be in Tout Wars, and I think my league is with Joe um, Pisapia, so I should be seeing him unless I, unless they change the rosters. Um, I have three Adenu leagues. Um, Adenu is the uh, the format that is kind of uh, hosted or, or designed and whatnot by uh, by Fangraphs, and they have actually two different um, two different formats. One is Roto, and then one is Head to Head. Uh, and they both use the special Adenu, uh, like Fangraphs points. Well, no, I shouldn't say both. I'm sorry. The 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 head-to-head uses the special uh, Adenu points, and then the Roto is just Roto. It's just the 10 by 10, or five. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Five by five traditional uh, categories. Uh, and then I have like a, a couple of home leagues. One of them's a a 10 team five by five Roto, and one is a 10 team uh, head-to-head points. So I'm in as many different styles that you can think of except for maybe uh, like a dynasty. I don't really do a lot of dynasty stuff probably because I'm not very good at it uh, and I don't know a lot about uh, uh, prospects honestly um, and I you know I don't I don't know if I have the uh, bandwidth for it at this point anymore but there's a yeah I try to I try to diversify it makes it uh, you know it's always fun that way to try different things. I used to play a lot more leagues than I do now, and I found that the trouble was just keeping track of everybody because, you know, you'd like to have more or less the same players or a lot of the same players across your rosters but uh, because you like those players. But, of course, life doesn't work out that way. You're constantly getting sniped in snake drafts or outbid because the price goes beyond you. Uh, do you have some kind of disciplined method of keeping track of all your teams and the guys that are playing and uh, all that kind of stuff? How do you manage it? I don't have a discipline method. And in fact, I screw up all the time. Like uh, there are days where, or weeks where I'll forget to set my lineup. Uh, definitely days where I forget to set my lineup. Adenu and my, my home league are both daily leagues. And all the time I, I'm missing out when a, a start gets pushed up or I'm missing, uh, you know, when guys are getting benched or whatever. And um, that's that's kind of the the risk I run from living in Hawaii, I'll, I'll miss early start times on days when there's morning games. That's, I just always botch that. Um, but being NFBC, I, I will say that like having NFBC is nice because all of your roster change stuff happens on one page. So I'm going to have five teams or whatever, or seven, I guess, with Raz Slam and TGFBI, and that'll all be on one page, and I can just click through each one one by one uh, and do them all uh, in one fell swoop. So i got to say that that really consolidates a lot of that effort for me Um, because if that wasn't the case I probably wouldn't have half as many of those leagues Um, but the the short answer is I don't have a good system I just have to I just have to have a list of bookmarks and plow through each of my teams one by one to make sure that I'm I'm updating them every night or every morning or whatever and I make mistakes just like anyone else so Speaking of the great fantasy baseball invitational, you said in a recent Rotographs post when you were reviewing your draft that you felt more prepared for drafts this year than you did last year. What constitutes good preparation in your view? There's you know there's a bunch of different ways to answer that. I think I think specifically last year and just kind of overall, I'm like a I'm kind of like a, an every other year guy where like I I'll have a good year 
uh, and then I get like a little overconfident going into the next year, so I don't prepare as much, and then I have a bad year, and then to uh, to kind of uh, make up for me having a bad year, I will overprepare, have another good year, and then repeat the process. So last year was a bad year. I, I had a really great year in 2018. Last year I was a little overwhelmed, um, kind of was behind on my prep. I was doing a lot of writing gigs, and then I just never really got around to um, doing the necessary preparation that I do, which is to look at my projections, which is to do deep dives on lots of players. I try to familiarize myself with nearly everyone who I think might be um, fantasy relevant, even if it's just going to their page and, and looking at their stats. Like I, you know, if, if you try to go off of an encyclopedic memory or recollection of what happened in the previous year, you're definitely going to forget all of the narratives and you're definitely going to forget who struggled or who was good. And I just kind of tried to rely on my intuition last year a little too much. And I had a couple of good teams, but otherwise I, I, I mostly blew it by just not give, not doing the due diligence that I, I should have performed on all of these guys that I thought I knew well. And it turns out I, I really didn't. Um, so that's what I'm doing this year. And I, again, I, classic me, I just procrastinated like crazy, but, in the last month, I've just been preparing in earnest, and I just feel so much more prepared than I did last year. I, I, I have guys in every round that I would like to target or avoid as opposed to just having, like, a handful of guys that I target in every team and having my – or, I'm sorry, in every league and, and having all of my leagues live or die by those same players. I can have some diversification of my, my rosters because I'm a little more prepared. Well – Despite the preparation that you're doing this time, you said in that same column that you don't have firm convictions about any player, and you saw that as a detriment. I had a big debate with a guy on Twitter once about whether you should have convictions about any player and, and that you should act on them, but what did you mean by convictions, and how come you don't have them? Uh, I think I, I'm trying to remember what I wrote exactly. I, I think I maybe didn't have firm convictions last year. Um, and I, you know, I try to have a firm conviction about everyone because I, I think, you know, when, when you're presented with a decision, especially in a snake draft where you have to just, you're picking an order, you are presented with basically what amounts to the best available players left as opposed to in an auction where you, it's not having happening linearly, I should say, in terms of uh, player value. Um, so in a snake draft, when you're, uh, you know, in theory presented with the, the best players left um, and you have to make a decision between, like in my, my post, I had a decision between Aaron Nola or Charlie Morton or Hugh Darvish or uh, I don't remember the fourth guy, Zach Granke, um, it's good to have concrete opinions about all of them because um, you're, you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't. You know, like if I don't have an opinion on Charlie Morton, you know, it's not it's not the end of the world if I don't take him, but you could be missing out on a guy with high upside or you could be accidentally avoiding a guy who's about to bottom out. Like it could go either way, but at the same time, it would just be good, especially so early in the draft with the guys who are going to constitute such an important and large chunk of the value that's generated for your team to have strong opinions on at least most of them. Um, and so, like, when I was presented with that particular junction, I, I like Charlie Morton more on a per-inning basis than I do Aaron Nola, but he's 36. Um, he's, he's getting older. Uh, Aaron Nola, and he's, he's only thrown more than 190 innings 
just once in the last three years, and that was last year. And Aaron Nola has thrown 200 innings twice uh, in the last two years. He's, uh, you know, he's durable. He's very good. Um, he isn't as good as Morton on a parading basis, but for a league like the, the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, where it's 15 team, I wanted to just aim for, I guess, what I would call a higher floor than a higher ceiling, and so I opted for Nola. And, and being able to have concrete opinions on both of those guys uh, was beneficial to me, even though it created a really difficult decision. I, um, you know, I was able to make a very informed decision too. I would say that, uh, you know, having no concrete opinion on certain guys is fine. Um, I'm on the record as not having a strong opinion on Corey Kluber or Carlos Carrasco. Um, you know, they just had weird seasons last year. Carrasco, legit, you know, he literally had leukemia. That's there's really not a lot of precedent for guys who had cancer. Um, you know, it's and I, I've seen how cancer affects the human body. It's it's uh, it's it can be really ugly or it can be not so bad. And uh, you know, everyone's different. James Jameson Tyon um, had cancer and he came back. That doesn't necessarily mean Carrasco will do the same. So you know, Carrasco I love, but this year I'm not necessarily pursuing him just because I can't possibly make an informed decision about what his 2020 season is going to look like. In my TGFBI league, I came up with the uh, Morton Nola decision, and uh, luckily for me, the guy in front of me made it because he took Morton and left me Nola to take. But yeah, it, that particular uh, juncture of the draft, it's a it's a difficult choice to make, and then you start having to decide uh, based on gut feel sometimes. I don't know exactly how you describe it. You also showed uh, some results based on a set of projections from Rotographs combined with your own projections. Uh, that This is another bone of contention I've been seeing in a lot of expert commentary, whether it's worthwhile doing your own projections because so many other people are already doing them that maybe your time is better spent in, in sort of game strategy planning or um, some other kind of research rather than just repeating the same work that everybody else has done and tweaking a home run here or a home run there, which Ron Chandler says is a waste of time anyway because it's it implies a level of precision that we can't possibly reach. Uh, why do you do your own projections? That, is, that summarizes it pretty, pretty neatly, like what I shouldn't be doing with my projections. And I, I, I make my own projections because um, I think it... it uh, I'm trying to figure out a best way to articulate this. It's a good way of finding the guys who are most discrepant from the main projection system. So like it was kind of hilarious to me when I compiled the the stats for my first 10 guys, how similar the projections were on those guys. And like that, that really doesn't surprise me at all. Like my projection system isn't very elaborate and I'm not trying to bring down the better projection system, excuse me, better projection systems by saying, that and having mine be so similar to them, but just the main guys who are consistently elite year in and year out, there's not going to be a lot of fluctuation in their performance. Um, they're as bankable as they come. There really should not be a whole lot of difference between my projection system and the other projections. But when you start to get to the fringes of the player pool for the guys who could be difference makers farther down in ADP, uh, guys with uh, low playing time projections or uh, minimal MLB experience, et cetera, guys who just will have the most variance in their projections based on all the projection systems. If you go to someone like, oh, man, I'm trying to think of like who, Louis Robert, uh, I guess he actually is, is Luis Robert, um, as, they, as is, he doesn't say it Frenchly uh, the way I just did, but 
you know, he, off the top of my head, he might be someone who has uh, a wide array of outcomes just because he doesn't have MLB experience yet. So someone like that, um, that's where you either find an edge or avoid him based on uh, his draft price and maybe how your own projections compare to the others. But I would say generally speaking, like I'm not living or dying by my own projections. In fact, I'm not really looking at projections very much at all, especially in a snake draft where I have a minute to decide. I'm not combing through my projections to pick the best guy. And I'm really relying on my intuition that I've developed from doing deep dives on guys to kind of have an understanding of who I want to take at a certain time and, and what skill set. This is actually kind of like a Babs thing where I'm really targeting a skill set at a certain juncture more than a certain set of stats. And I'm not going to pick a guy over another because he has one more homer and five more points of batting average compared to player B. You know, that's we're talking about a margin of error that we can't possibly predict. And so I'm never going to decide on such a, uh, such a razor-thin margin. But definitely farther down the road, especially for those marginal guys in, in the later rounds of your draft, there's going to be more of an edge in where you think your projections might outperform the main systems that uh, assume more regression to the, the league average. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Alex Chamberlain from Fangraphs, Rotographs. And uh, Alex, you've also discussed Kentucky Derby system planning. A lot of leagues use that, including a lot of the uh, um, NFBC leagues, which allows you basically to throw your numbers into a hat and, uh, and try to pick yours your slot and your structure was four, five, six, seven, eight, then one, two, three, then nine through 15. Why did you want to avoid those one, two, three picks and start with four? This is the third year of TGFBI uh, specifically, and it's a 15 team league. And what I've learned pretty acutely in the last two years is that I haven't been good at drafting or maintaining a good rotation. Uh, in a 15-team league, which is something that I don't really play a lot of 15-team leagues. It's a lot deeper than 12. Um, The waiver wire is absolutely barren. Um, It can be uh, terrifying at times how barren it is. Um, And so I, instead of prioritizing the top three guys, Trout, Yelich, Acuna, um, I wanted to try to prioritize Garrett Cole or Jacob deGrom um, so I could at least have one of those bona fide aces to anchor my rotation. Um, just because, again, I don't really trust myself to actually draft a good rotation uh, in a 15-team league. Um, I fully trust myself to draft uh, a good uh, lineup of hitters. Um, I've done pretty well at that. I mean, at least in the first year, the second year was kind of a nightmare. Um, and so I just wanted to kind of give myself that base from the beginning uh, by prioritizing four through eight, which is where I expected Cole and DeGrom to go. Uh, and then if I didn't get those, I would at least fall back on one, two, three, which is the top three hitters. Unfortunately, I ended up with number nine. So I I completely didn't get to uh, take advantage of either one of my strategies. Uh, I ended up with plan C, plan at all. Um, but I do like Trevor Story and, and Trey Turner, and I got to pick between those two and um, – you know, I, it's not a bad way to build a core, and I think, you know, you can't complain about the hand that you've drawn. You just have to, to make lemonade with lemons. And, um, you know, I think my team has turned out well so far, but I'm, I'm facing the same issue that I, I, I just kind of have a thin rotation at this point, and it's going to be uh, something I'm chasing all year. 
With your second pick after uh, taking Trevor Story in round one, you had the opportunity to sort of set up your rotation with a pretty elite level pitcher in Steven Strasburg, uh, but you instead took Alex Bregman. And I wonder, considering that you also said in that column that taking two hitters in the first two rounds is, and I'm quoting you here, wildly suboptimal, why didn't you grab Steven Strasburg when you had the chance? Yeah, I um, I would say Wiley suboptimal just based on my own uh, drafting talent uh, in terms of drafting pitchers. Um, I don't think I don't think drafting two hitters in a row is suboptimal, and you can you, you know you can truly you can win with any strategy. So I don't want to claim that one strategy is better than the other. But for my own purposes, I again I didn't want to escape the first two rounds without a pitcher. Um, but when Bregman fell to me at 21, I mean this is a guy who, you know, like look you can you can say whatever you want about the trash can banging, and I you know I'm not going to dispute really any of the evidence that's out there, but Bregman, trash can or not, has some of the best plate discipline in the game. Um, he doesn't have, like, elite stat cast metrics, but he has some of the best uh, bat-to-ball um, skills as well as kind of authority over his um, kind of, like, uh, I, I guess, you know, he kind of plays up his, his stat cast metrics more than his profile suggests. And, and the 40 homers that he he hit last year, whatever that was. You know, some of it was lucky, but he's also taking advantage of a, a friendly uh, short porch uh, in Houston, too. And I, I know that most of his hit home runs came on the road, but he still has a, quite a friendly home park, deceptively friendly. And so, um, you know, I, I, we're talking about a guy with a really high floor. He has two top 15 finishes. And for, to have him to fall to 21, uh, to have the opportunity to, to profit on a guy in the second round, which is just so rare, all you can really hope for is those guys to just break even, if not, uh, you know, uh, turn a turn a loss, because there's really no profit margin. And for him to be able to have a profit margin is, it could be pretty big things. And it was just one of those things where I couldn't pass that up. Um, I really would have taken Starling Marte or Strasburg, like you said, but it was just one of those things where um, I think Bregman will greatly out earn Strasburg, and I just need to find a way to build my rotation, regardless of you know. Who, who I'm taking in the second round here. When you grabbed Ozzy Albies, you said uh, you called it a league-winning, not overall contest-winning type of acquisition. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so, you know, I think there's two kind of like modes of thought in terms of TGFBI and, and these contests that have an overall component, um, such as the, the, the online championship for NFBC. And basically, you know, the, the schools of thought are like you, you try to win your league, or you try to win the overall, and the overall, uh, if you're going to win the overall, you want to take chances on guys who uh, could uh, just absolutely change everything, uh, you know, if they break out or have a full season. And so, like, the guys that I'm thinking of are probably the most extreme players, like Alberto Mondesi. Um, you know, if he has 160 games under his belt, he can be, uh, you know, uh, an overall winner. Um, a healthy Giancarlo Stanton can be an overall winner. Um 220 innings of Clayton Kershaw can be an overall winner. Ozzy Albies is is not he does not have that kind of ceiling I don't think, but he has an, an extremely high floor and he's shown incredible consistency over his first two seasons and he's really only like what 22 years old so he might still have that ceiling. Um, but I think you know I, I'm more buying Albies here for his high floor again. This is a guy who's been a top 40 hitter the last two years. I basically got him at 40, um, so I feel like I'm I'm not overpaying for a guy who can really uh, just bolster my core. Uh, if he breaks out even more than he has, you know, he's like a, a five-war player already, 
if he becomes more than that, then great. But otherwise, I'm just kind of buying him for what he'll provide me, which is hopefully um, top 40 production uh, and, and not really uh, holding my breath for more. Well, you did hope to start your draft from a position with a true A starter. You didn't manage to do that because uh, circumstance didn't fall your way. Your subsequent tactics have really downplayed starters, I thought. Carlos Carrasco in the 8th, Hyunjin Ryu in the 10th, and both of these guys seem quite risky. Uh, you mentioned Carrasco's health risk given the cancer. What about the innings pitched risks with Ryu, who's been reported to be on some kind of innings watch, if not limit, in Toronto? Yeah, so um right, it's not it hasn't been optimal. It hasn't been optimal for my for my draft standpoint. I think I think on a perning basis, uh, the guys I drafted are going to be really good and the way that I ra- I rationalized picking Carrasco, I know that we just spoke about me not having a firm opinion on him is that I you know, this is a league where even though it's competitive, uh you know, with a lot of the best people in the industry, it's also for fun. Um I don't have any skin in this. And so I just said, you know what, screw it. Like I'm going to get my my token share of Carrasco and we are going to ride or die here. Um, I think, you know, I, obviously I want him to be healthy. Um, I would never wish anything against him. And I think, you know, this is kind of like the right place to just take that risk. He was, um, losing value based on his health. And, um, you know, I guess my, my, uh, kind of like my analysis of him is that his peripherals look okay. It's just that he, was grooving some pitches last year and he got teed off on and you know you really can't hold that against him but like in terms of stuff like a lot of it was still there so i you know again not holding my breath but i i think that you know his worst case scenario is that he is mediocre but not atrocious and his best case scenario is that he's back to being a, a top 10 pitcher and that's all i could ask for hyunjin ryu um is an interesting one and you know i'm gonna have to find 60 innings or so probably to replace in his pitching slot but it's also interesting to me that um you know the blue jays are taking kind of a a cautious approach with him i actually kind of like that more instead of the dodgers grinding him every five days or whatever and him wearing out and hitting the injured list um that he actually maybe gets uh, an extra day of rest every now and then um, that he only pitches 156, 150, 160 innings, and that that extra day of rest actually makes his 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 starts, the few starts that he makes, um, higher quality, as opposed to him just trying to pitch on a normal schedule and then getting injured. He's actually getting extra rest deliberately, and then and then taking advantage of that. And so we're getting um, extremely high quality innings, which he already provides, um, with the safety that you know the Blue Jays are. Um, kind of babying him in terms of his his workload but it, you're not wrong in that I'm going to have to to pivot somewhere and and really bolster up his uh his innings projection or or, or the innings that he's not going to have uh when he's you know being babied um so that's something that I'm going to have to reconcile later in the draft and to be frank in in round 20 already I'm not sure I have so again I'm I'm running thin on pitching but we have guys who are going to give me great ratios and great strikeout rates. I just need to figure out a way to fill in the rest of those innings with with some with some quality arms. 
Yeah, easier said than done, I think. Uh, I grabbed Hyunjin Ryu in my TGFBI draft as well, and I had the same concerns you did, but I looked at them a slightly different way, and that is my big worry is that they're going to manage his innings by shortening his starts rather than by lengthening his rest between starts. And, uh, of course, if they do that, he may get just as many starts as he would have got, but he's going to get fewer wins, he's going to get fewer innings in those appearances, and so forth. So that's that's my concern there. And he did have that stretch last year in Los Angeles where he was just terrible and he just looked really tired. Uh, are you concerned at all that the Blue Jays, instead of throwing a six-day rest in there every so often, are going to instead put him on a five or two times through the order type limit? Uh, you know, I'm not actually, I, you know, that I think that would be fine too, honestly, because guys perform worst third time through the order, and if we're stopping Ryu before the third time through the order, I think it's just a different way of truncating it. You're going to give him more starts with fewer innings. I don't think that dramatically changes the win total because if you're giving him fewer starts, he has fewer opportunities inherently to get those wins. And so I think shaving off an inning here and there, it might feel like we're truncating that that possibility a little bit, but I don't think it dramatically changes the projection at all, really. And I think we're kind of, it's kind of like two sides of the same coin that we are, uh, you know, it, on six days of rest, we're giving him, uh, more of a chance to produce higher quality innings and if we give him the regular rest but fewer innings we are just deliberately shaving off the innings that are the riskiest so um, I kind of see it being a wash honestly I'm not as I'm not too concerned about that Alex this has been terrific so far just stand by for a sec I got to do some business for Baseball HQ and then we'll come back we'll talk about your research Sure thing. Thanks. Alex Chamberlain researches and writes for Rotographs. Alex, stand by for a minute while I bring our listeners up to date on why I like to call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Facts and Flukes Performance Validation, analyst Brant Chesser looks at five American leaguers, including down-market save sources in Tampa and Detroit. In Playing Time Tomorrow roster analysis, Dan Marcus looks at the National League Central, including a swan song in Milwaukee and sleeper save sources in Chicago and Pittsburgh. And in Rotisserie Gaming, analyst Dave Adler recaps his Labor American League draft. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's that player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in the big hurt, and tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. You get expert-level content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And don't forget that special HQ Radio offer. Use the promo code PATRICK at checkout. Get a 10% discount on site subscriptions and your copies of the Forecaster Annual and the Minor League Baseball Analyst. 10% off promo code PATRICK at checkout. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure once more to be joined by Alex Chamberlain, who researches and writes for Rotographs at Fangraphs.com. Alex, welcome back. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. In another article at Rotographs, you ha- wrote about the correlations between stat cast data, like barrel rates, average exit velocities, with various simpler power metrics like home runs, per outfield fly ball, isolated power. What was the genesis of this research? Yeah, so one day Al Melkier, I think he um, 
he like messaged the Slack channel for Fangraphs, or maybe he messaged me directly, and he was just like, I want to compile all of this. I want to compile all this information uh, about the StatCast metrics. I just want to figure out which ones are best. We, we keep talking about them all differently, and we don't really have any clarity on which one is the best uh, in terms of you know their relationship with the traditional power metrics that we use. Um, and so I just grabbed all the numbers, and I, I I ran them, I, I, you know, I crunched the relationships and I fed that to Al and he, he wrote it up last year and I, I just refreshed that, that post this year is basically all I did. I just updated it with, with 21, 2019 data and um, that's, that's the crux of it. I'm just looking to see which ones have the strongest relationship and it turns out, just as it did last year, uh, that barrels uh, are probably the strongest uh, you know, kind of measure of power um, in in the classic sense of the term, when we're talking about like isolated power or home runs per fly ball, uh, and not far behind it, if I'm remembering correctly, is exit velocity on fly balls and line drives, and that's pretty intuitive too. You know, those are the the the, um, the types of balls in play that are going to produce home runs. You're not going to hit a home run on a pop up or a ground ball. So the guys who can consistently produce a high exit velocity on fly balls and line drives are going to be the guys who hit for more power as well. And as you said, that stands to reason, which is always reassuring when you're doing any kind of research that you don't come up with uh, some kind of thing that says, you know, really, Malik Smith should be hitting 28 home runs a year. And, and then you have to scratch your head and think uh, maybe you put a decimal in the wrong spot or something in your calculations. I noticed in the table that the strongest correlations were between the StatCast metrics and the expected weighted on-base average, which is a bit more of a manufactured metric than home runs per outfield fly balls or ISO. What should we make of the fact that the best correlations in the StatCast area are to this construct of expected weighted on-base average? Oh, that gets into a lot of theory and suppositions, but, um, you know, I, I think, um, how do I answer this? The, the, the ex-WOBA, um, you know, has a, has a really great premise behind it. It's looking at um, effectively just every combination of, of launch angle and velocity and and seeing the the past results on those those same types of hits and kind of applying like what the average quality of contact would be on those types of hits and then um you know there's it's a little more nuanced than that but it, it shouldn't surprise us at all that something like barrels would correlate strongly with it barrels being also a a component metric that uses exit velocity uh, and launch angle, but very specific subsets of those um, that determines which ones are high quality. Um, and using that kind of as um, it, it's it's almost just like a proxy. Uh, you know, I think I think when we're we're talking about two metrics that are built off of the same uh, kind of ingredients, uh, that you, you, we shouldn't be surprised to see them. Uh, relate so strongly to each other, even if they're not being used precisely in the same way, kind of the spirit uh, that underpins both of them um, are really similar. And they're both, they're both really kind of ingenious in a way. And I know people have um, their concerns with both of them, you know, ex woba not uh, accounting for uh, the direction of the hit, like pull uh, and oppo uh, and barrels, just kind of like blindly um, looking at very certain um, subsets of exit velocity and launch angle, um, but uh, you know they're they're 
for for what we have, they're 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 quite brilliant um, in their simplicity, uh, and it doesn't surprise me really that they they relate so strongly because of their their kind of their shared um, their shared structures. Back in the day when I was just starting out trying to do some baseball research, it might even have been with Lotus One Two Three. That'll tell you how long ago it was. But uh, one of the things I, I always ran into as a difficulty or a conceptual difficulty was comparing or finding the relationships between two sets of outcomes or two sets of measurements. And as you mentioned, that there are elements of the com- composition of the first one in the second one, and that can drive a, a correlation higher than it probably might be if you had been, or not you, if, if I had been better at separating things out so that the one set of uh, components of a metric was not duplicated in the other one, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, it, it's, it's almost like cheating a little bit. I, you know, I think the component metrics are deliberately made to improve our understanding of certain things. And, I, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, we have, we have it's hard to explain um, kind of in the abstract, but, you know, if you have a, a metric like swinging strike rate, that's, that's just kind of a raw outcome. We're just looking at the percentage of, of pitches that have a swinging strike. Whereas something like FIP or XFIP or Sierra, these are the popular ERA estimators, those are composite metrics that are looking at a multitude of different variables. And it's not surprising whatsoever that FIP and XFIP are going to be a better um, kind of explanation of ERA than swinging strike rate alone. The same thing kind of goes for these ones where like XWOBA or barrels are going to be better than raw average exit velocity or raw average exit velocity on fly balls and line drives because we're taking multiple raw variables, uh, just kind of like naturally occurring inputs and combining them into something bigger and better. So really, if the, if the, the composite, the component metric is not outperforming, then really you're doing something wrong because, it, you know, it should, uh, it should pretty much always be better in that sense. That's what we're always striving for. But I think if you're, you know, if you're someone who's cautious of, of the component metrics of, of what they're doing, or you just, you're just inherently skeptical of something that resides in kind of a black box, then you should look at average average exit velocity on fly balls and line drives because you're really not losing a lot of explanatory power by doing so. I mean, it's it's really strong in and of itself. It's just a you know a hair, uh, you know, a fraction uh, less uh, uh, not less strong, but a fraction weaker than uh, what you know the component metrics of of barrels or or xwoba or whatever. Another aspect of coming up with these metrics or with these kinds of analyses uh, that I found when I was uh, doing a lot of this kind of work uh, was the difference between descriptive metrics and predictive metrics. And the a lot of the metrics that we came up with weren't particularly predictive because the component parts of them weren't particularly sticky, uh, to use your term. And, and uh, I, I remember when I started at Baseball HQ, one of the mantras was, once you display a skill, you own it. And I think that was probably accurate when the skills were fairly broadly described. But when you get to something like swinging strike rate or barrels or these kinds of things, how much extra or less stickiness are we getting from the from that underlying skill metric uh, a barrel rate seems like a, a really good skill metric and you've said it correlates well with uh, power indices so is the barrel metric itself is it the kind of metric that uh, a player does seem to own from year to year to year yeah, I'm trying to remember what the exact results were for my post and I probably should just have it up but yeah barrel surprisingly barrels 
um, as a component metric is is quite strong from year to year, and I think it's not as strong as something like average exit velocity, but still very strong, um, which generally shows, I mean, if we're thinking conceptually about this, a barrel is just, again, um, very specific combinations of exit velocity and launch angle. All that means is if, if barrels stick from year to year, that we are expecting a player to basically sustain a certain level of contact authority with a certain kind of swing plane. And that's a pretty reasonable assumption to make unless the guy you know, overhauls his swing, unless the guy dramatically slides down the aging curve. You can, you can expect that his barrel rate should stick from year to year. And that's one of those rare instances where a component metric like that actually performs really well from year to year because FIP and XFIP and, and Sierra, you know, those, those are strong descriptively, but the more descriptive they become, like you said, the less predictive they become. FIP is the most descriptive of ERA, but it's the least predictive of next ERA or next year ERA, whereas XFIP is the opposite. It, it's, it's less descriptive of, of what's happening, but more predictive of what's going to happen next year. And, and barrels actually excels at both, which is, which is pretty remarkable. And that's definitely a, a metric that you should keep your eye on specifically because of that. And I think average exit velocity on fly balls and line drives also does the same. Um, so you're right. It, it, it's, it's difficult because um, the more precise you get with a certain data point, the noisier it becomes inherently. You know, if I'm, if I'm doing average exit velocity on line drives to left center field, you're not going to have enough data points in that very specific subset to derive anything meaningful from that, I think. So there's the battle of trying to hone in on a very specific type of skill without losing the robustness uh, that underpins that. And I think Barrels kind of like finds the sweet spot between those two. You mentioned uh, average exit velocity as a metric that people can look at. And I've asked uh, other baseball researchers this because I'm still not clear in my own mind basically because I lack the math skills. But when we talk about a metric that's an average like exit velocity, how much are we depending on that taking a normal bell curve shape and not being kind of irregular and, and uh, you know, having, having results that are all over the map? And because if it's a, if it seems to me if it's a fairly normal curve that we can be a little more trusting of it as a, as a descriptor of a, of a player's skill, whereas if it's bouncing around all over the place, perhaps the, the variability increases and makes it less predictive or, or less of a sure thing when we're trying to assess player A versus player B. We'd have to know the curves, the shape of the curves, long tail, short tail, whatever, to understand how player A compares to player B if we're using average exit velocity or average anything. You say that you're not good at math, and then you're throwing stats terms at me. So I think you're fine. Um, well, well. But I saw on Twitter, and I think the I, I don't actually I'm not sure I know his name, but his Twitter handle is Raging Randall. I think, and he actually mapped out like the distribution of exit velocity by player, and I think it's actually bimodal, which means that instead of being a bell curve, and for those at home, uh, you know, a bell curve looks like a bell. The um, the most frequent um, yeah, let's let's use exit velocity for our example here. The most frequent contact quality is going to be right in the middle, um, and then it's going to kind of like slowly um, drop as you get farther away from that. So uh, let's say that a guy's average exit velocity is 90. Um, 
the his most frequent is also going to be 90 and then as you as you go away from 90 towards 100 towards 80 that's those are going to be happening less and less often that's effectively what a bell curve is describing but bimodal uh, is essentially saying that there's kind of like two bill two bells smushed against each other um and so you're going to have a dip in the middle where the kind of like the median is and then you're going to have uh, a spike where there are higher exit velocities and a spike where there are lower exit velocities. So there's actually quite a bit of noise in the way that you're describing. Um, and I think that's just kind of the way that um, certain batted ball types, uh, you know, are. I think I think when you have a, a fly ball or a line drive, it, it, it inherently has a, a higher exit velocity um, and ground balls tend to have this lower exit velocity and there's this kind of gray area in the middle where you're not achieving that this kind of middle ground because it just doesn't fit snugly into either one of the, the batted ball categories. So um, it definitely is a weird thing. And um, not knowing what that looks like for hitters, um, it definitely it matters a lot. And I actually wrote a post about this uh, looking at launch angle consistency. Launch angle consistency has a huge effect on a guy's um, BABIP, which you know is such a, a fundamental component of, of player performance. And we're talking about guys who, guys with really consistent launch angles, guys who can repeat uh, the, the angle at which the ball leaves their bat are more likely to outperform in BABIP. And the guys who are um, really inconsistent in their launch angle um, are more prone to pop up. They're more prone to have weak grounders and they're are more prone to having low BABIP. Um, and that's, that's absolutely a quantifiable thing. Um, so it's, it's great to know that consistency. And that, that's the kind of thing that's really hard to know just looking at this this glut of data that we have from Snackcast, there's so much happening, and it's still there's so much that we we have to learn and to to dissect. What's your advice to fantasy owners who maybe don't want to dig into it to, you know, download the uh, baseball savant data and start messing around with it in Excel or maybe even something more powerful uh, as far as a statistics generator goes, but your average fantasy owner hears something like, hey, check barrel rates because they're they're fairly sticky and they're quite predictive of, of power players. Is that enough for for somebody to go and take a cautious toe-in-the-water kind of thing at uh, Savant or someplace that records these kind of statistics and, and look at them and start scaling their expectations for players based on that kind of limited sort of data? Or should uh, should they what should they do? Uh, I think that's absolutely okay. I would honestly say that w- that would that would probably be exactly what my recommendation would be, especially to someone who has never done, never looked at baseball savant, never used the Statcast data. Um, like we said, the the barrels are so strongly related to power and so uh, strongly related to performance, and they they stick so well from year to year that you don't really need to get fancier than that. And I think. Um, looking at the data really granularly, it's a, it's a really good way to familiarize yourself very intimately with what's happening under the hood. But if you are willing to trust someone like me with the recommendation or you're willing to blindly trust that uh, this organization is producing quality metrics, um, yeah, barrels, barrels are, are good in and of themselves. And I think if you just go to StatCast, if you just go to the Baseball Savant website and go to the leaderboards and look at the the leaders on barrels per plate appearance and the leaders on average exit velocity and and max home run distance and whatever that really is um the most you need to know truly for any uh casual or even hardcore uh fantasy player and i think everything that we learn beyond that we're just talking about very small 
incremental gains in knowledge, not not so not so large that everyone needs to pursue them. In fact, they're so small that um, you know the hours that are being sunk into them by people like me is probably not worth it. But you know, out of my own curiosity, I I want to keep exploring. But really, what I find is the deeper you get, you know, we've already covered so much of the learning curve, and we're really only capturing the last. Uh, you know, the last couple percentage points of what we have left to learn by by digging even deeper into it. Alex, all of this has to do with batters. Is there similar research that you or others have done for pitchers to identify those sticky skills and uh, and the ones that are consistent um, in being predictive slash descriptive and, and something that, uh, as Baseball HQ says, a skill they can own? Yeah, I think... Um... I'm going to answer this two ways. One is I, I think uh, Al Melkier and I actually did the same thing for pitchers last year. And I didn't refresh that post for this year, so I should maybe put that on my to-do list. But um, I think if you if you Google it, uh, the listener, if you Google it, um, Al Melkier, Fangraphs, um, power correlation, whatever, um, there should be a post for pitchers. And I think you're going to find that the results are the same. They're just always slightly weaker for pitchers. And that's just... You know that's it's weird. Pitchers are weird. You know, I, I think I think part of the reason that that is a thing is because um, for hitters we are able to group all of these results by the hitter, um, and each hitter is unique and has a very specific profile, and and the results that become uh, from that profile are somewhat predictable. Whereas a pitcher, um, one, the results take longer to stabilize, and two, you can't know what the hitter facing the pitcher looks like you're kind of assuming an average quality of hitter but that's not necessarily true and that's always fluctuating and it's just there's just more moving parts for pitchers and it's just one of those things that makes it more difficult to evaluate which is why just kind of fundamentally I'm always more cautious in my evaluation of pitchers I'm never so sure about anything frankly when it relates to pitchers and one of the hills that I'm willing to die on this year, one of the things that I think you know, a lot of the ERA estimators um, fall short on, one of the things that I think we are overlooking as a fantasy community is contact quality allowed. And that's in terms of either weighted on-base average or expected weighted on-base average on contact. And that's you probably see that on Twitter. They, it's called WOBACon or WOBACon if you are into bacon. Um, and uh, you can see where these ER estimators are kind of missing and hitting the mark uh, for guys at the extremes. And I, you know, I think one of the most salient examples is Chris Archer, who for maybe like the fourth time in a row is projected for like a low fours ERA. Um, but if you go to his StatCast page uh, or you, you, you do a query on who has allowed the hardest contact in terms of WOBA on contact, he's near the top every time in a bad way. He's up there with Robbie Ray. He's up there with Nick Pavetta. And he's up there with Shane Bieber. Uh, and so Shane Bieber is one of my guys who has me a little bit cautious this year because he allows extremely hard contact. And the flip side of that coin is Kyle Hendricks and Zach Granke. These are guys who are constantly overperforming uh, their FIP and their XFIP and their Sierra and whatever. And that's because these metrics that are assuming that they'll regress to league average are just making a false assumption about guys who are excellent at suppressing contact. And I think um, that's one of those things that I want to dig in more to see if this is an ownable trait. I'm 
confident that this is a trait that pitchers can own. It's just a matter of proving it in a way um, that's quantifiable. And I'm not sure ex Wobacon or Wobacon Wobacon, whichever you want to call it, uh, is the correct metric to be using. But I, you know, it's just one of those intuitions that I'm having that this is absolutely something we can prove on a pitcher level. Um, it's just a matter of figuring out the best way to do that. In the meantime, can we just look at um, sort of the reverse of the barrel phenomenon for hitters, how closely it ties to that kind of success, and assume that if we if we just stack rank pitchers by their avail- ability to avoid giving up barrels, and, and I, I think that's actually something you can look at or certainly easily figure out, would that, would that be a start to figuring out pitchers that you want to look at or avoid? Absolutely, and I think, the, again, those are those are tightly correlated, the, the barrels and the the ex-WOBA or WOBA on contact. I think if you, you look at the, the leaders of the last three years, some of them are surprising. Some of them are ones that you don't think about. Noah Syndergaard is excellent at avoiding barrels. Again, Kyle Hendricks is really good at it. Carlos Martinez is excellent at it. And I think this is, now I'm just making a case for Carlos Martinez out of the blue, but, you know, if he gets a starting job, we really shouldn't forget how good he was before he got injured and went into the bullpen. Um, he's extremely good at limiting hard contact um, and you are in barrels specifically. I know we're talking about barrels and he's, he's, I think maybe has the lowest barrel rate uh, of the last three years and Syndergaard's right behind him. And you flip that over. Uh, and again, the guys at the top are like Favetta and Bieber and, and Archer and, and all of these guys who we, we intuitively know get slapped around, maybe not Bieber so much. I think that's another story altogether, but the archers and the, the Bavettas, the guys that we've, had to abandon because we know that their ERA estimators are betraying us and we've learned not to trust them. Those are the guys that you'll look and they're going to have higher barrel rates. So I think you're, you're spot on about that. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Alex Chamberlain from Rotographs, Fangraphs. And a little earlier in the year, Alex, you did a research piece at Rotographs to upgrade a metric you devised called deserved barrels. Before we dig into that upgrade, what is the deserved barrels metric? So all I wanted to do was kind of do what we've talked about already, and that's just to look at the the raw inputs that go into barrels, and that's that's exclusively exit velocity and launch angle. And I I just kind of had this I, I keep using the word intuition, but I just kind of had this intuition that you could look at a player's average exit velocity and average launch angle, and using those components alone, get a feel for what he deserved to have gotten in terms of barrels. Um, and I was able to you know, uh, explain two-thirds of the variance in barrels with those metrics alone. I improved it considerably more by including uh, the consistency that I was talking about, so like consistency on launch angle, uh, consistency on exit velocity. Those are ownable skills too, I think, and and those are actually interesting indicators of uh, improvement or decline, I think, when, when, when they change dramatically from year to year. Um, again, one of those things that I, I'm speaking from anecdotally, but, but looking at the evidence uh, presented to me, it certainly seems that way. And um, again, just using basically the magnitude of launch angle and um, the consistency of launch angle and et cetera, with, uh, you know, ditto for exit velocity uh, and, and determining what a, a hitter should have deserved, quote unquote, uh, in terms of the barrels and, and, and using that hopefully as a leading indicator the way that we've done it for anything like uh, X batting average or X BABIP, um, trying to use that to see if there's some kind of leading indicator as to who may have over or underperformed in terms of power. 
It seems like uh, using averages, again, getting back to the uh, the idea of the shape of the curve, if you had a hitter who had a, did have a bipolar distribution and the center of it just happened to be where barrel land is, then the metric might be uh, not as descriptive as you might want. Yeah, there's definitely uh, the nuance of the hitter uh, of, of his profile definitely matters. And that's that's why I hope that the, the consistency would kind of explain that, because if you know the, the standard deviation or the variance of the launch angle or the exit velocity, that, that gives you a, a kind of a clear understanding of what his, his, the shape of his curve might look like. And so without really knowing exactly what the curve looks like, combining those two elements together, you're able to explain 80% of what a barrel is by, by combining both the consistency and the magnitude uh, of those variables. Um, the rest of it is probably just good old-fashioned luck, uh, you know, some other contexts, uh, but otherwise, uh, you know, I think we're, I, I think I've mostly gotten all the way there. As a public service, I noticed that you open source the actual formula for the new metric uh, deserved barrels. Requires a little skill on baseball savant, maybe some Excel skills, but you also have a table of hitters to show hitters who appeared to be lucky, that is their barrel rate is higher than it should be by deserved, and unlucky, which is the opposite. And I noticed right away that prominent on the unlucky list was Trevor Story, and I wondered how much that played into your selecting him over Trey Turner, getting back to uh, the TGFBI discussion. Uh, Trey Turner, who was a little closer to break even on the on the luck luck part of the metric yeah yeah i think um i I actually hilariously i made this metric that i i hope to you know inform a lot of my my draft strategy and i haven't used it all that much frankly um i do use it in in kind of like a tiebreaker scenario if i have a couple of guys who are really similar but i see that maybe his deserved barrels is way higher than uh than his barrel rate actually was or at least it's way higher than someone else's, and I'll use it as a tiebreaker. In terms of Story and Turner, um, this kind of goes back to the Morton versus Nola argument, which is I think Turner has the higher per-game potential, excuse me, um, just because of his stolen base potential, and I think that that really sets him over the top, but but Story has the higher floor. He even might have a higher ceiling, um, frankly, um, but I again, I was kind of opting for um, not safety as much as just that higher floor. I just wanted to make sure that I was returning that first-round value. And I looked at the data. Trevor Story is the only other player not named Christian Yelich or Mike Trout to be a top-ten player the last two years. So if you you know look no further than Story if you're looking for consistency. And I think uh, if you want to try to, to win an overall, you might take someone like, like Turner, but you run the risk of him missing 20 or 30 games because he plays so hard. Any other hitters on your list jump out as guys to to consider that might be a bit of a surprise, or guys that are guys we might want to avoid based on that information? Oh man, I mean, the a lot of the big breakouts from last year are well, they're they're all over the map. But I, you know, I'm thinking of someone like Mitch Garver, who uh, is like almost fully verified or val- fully validated by by his ex woba and his his barrel rates. I I the the more I look at Peter Alonzo or Pete Alonzo, and, and the more that I incorporate, you know, the consistency element uh, into barrels. Uh, at first, he he looked really bad. He looked like he overperformed by five or six percentage points, and it, it turns out that he's actually a, a pretty consistent hitter in terms of his launch angles and his, his exit velocities. And he really only performed by one or two percentage points. So I'm actually buying into his his outbreak a lot more. And not that not that there was anything to doubt. I mean, if you look at the man, he's a 
he is a literal polar bear. So it's not like there was really a whole lot to question there. But, you know, whether he hits 50 home runs again, that's, you know, an entire story altogether, another story altogether. Um, no one really stuck out to me, but, you know, there were some guys like Machado, I think, who basically has had identical performance across every year. And then suddenly last year, his his barrel rate just kind of suffered, even though his launch angle stayed the same and his exit velocity stayed the same. So I think that's, you know, I, I haven't been targeting Machado a lot, but I think he's a, a kind of like a, one of the perfect candidates for using deserved barrels because it's just confirming what we would intuitively know if we just took a few minutes to look at his profile and see that nothing really changed. And, you know, it's easy to believe that something happened for him to deserve that bad luck and you know it did happen there's no doubting that it happened but it also certainly seems that he just had one of those unlucky seasons and then it's it's a really good time to capitalize on what might be his lowest ADP for you know the next five or ten years at this point you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio Patrick Davitt with Alex Chamberlain from Fangraphs Photographs and uh, Alex in a third research piece you were talking about tweaking the StatCast formulas for ex-WOBA by adding in spray angle why did you think that was worth looking into as a refinement I think I think that's one of those things that is uh, you know I won't call it a complaint but just like one of the biggest concerns about ex-WOBA is that it doesn't include a spray angle component I think uh, intuitively we know that spray angle is important because a 350 foot fly ball down the line is a home run. Uh, and a 350 foot fly ball to dead center is the easiest pop out in the world. Um, so the direction of the ball hit definitely matters. And there are certain guys who very deliberately pull the ball more or go the other way more. I think, um, you know, I think there's something to be said of uh, batted ball, Ray as a skill, I, I think that's very ownable, and I, I don't think there's really any denying that. I think it's more of a mathematical issue is the reason why the Stackhouse guys excluded it, but I took a stab at including it, and guys who pull the ball a lot started to perform better. Guys like Jose Ramirez, who pulled the ball 50% of the time, he saw a 30-point boost uh, in his WOBA, or his WOBA con, I should say, uh, based on using spray angle as a component into uh, the calculation and, and guys who have uh, more of an all fields approach saw their, their values drop, uh, conversely. So, um, it absolutely matters. And it, it's, you know, there's no right way of including it. Um, and that's, you know, I'm not, so I'm not saying that my, my method is the be all end all of that analysis, but you can just see from a cursory analysis of, you know, saying how often he hits it to left field, how often he hits it to left center, uh, how often he hits it to dead center, uh, and grouping all of his her, his performance thusly, um, and then maybe including a little bit of a, a park factor adjustment if you wanted to, seeing how that affects guys' performance. Uh, and guys like Jose Ramirez, who appear to underperform um, based on kind of a, an assumption of an all-fields approach, um, will will be undervalued because it's not considering his extremely high pull rate. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, too, that you divided the field into little slices rather than big ones, like left, center, right, or or pull, center, oppo. There's uh, 
what, nine or 10 slices of nine or 10 degrees each, which is much finer of a way to measure what's going on there. And I think that's a, that's a plus as well, because, uh, again, depending on the park your guy plays in, that could matter. Uh, and you also mentioned that, uh, batter foot speed could be a factor, which makes sense and defense. And I was wondering when I read that thing, it made me think about shifts and, and is there a way to try to figure out how the vulnerability of a hitter to shifts might affect his his uh, metrics, uh, especially things like uh, WOBA on contact or WOBA itself, because the formula doesn't allow for the fact that, you know, everybody knows where he hits it. He always hits it there, and therefore his, uh, his results are going to be much poorer. I think, um, I definitely think there's something to be made of defense. Um, it's not really a strong desire of mine to find out but i just know from looking at the spray angle data i could see the pockets specifically of ground balls by angle like you as you're talking about like left center middle between left center and left um between left center and center field just all these different little slices you can see for ground balls at all these little different angles how much ground balls play up at certain angles because you just know that's where the defender, the, the defenseman, the, the fielder, wow, I just sound like a, a non-sports person. That's where you know where the, the fielder is not up, you know, straight up the middle. No one's playing right behind second base. So it definitely matters if you, if you have an idea <clears throat> of um, exactly where that ground ball is going to go. I, I don't think there's any denying that, but I think the, probably the, the biggest struggle is the repeatability of a very specific subset so you know we're talking about these nine or ten degree slices you know i don't know how how repeatable it is that so and so hits 30 percent of his ground balls at this very specific subset of of angles i think you're mostly playing an odds game that um that you can't really win but i think it plays on the data too you see lower ground ball rates or, or i'm sorry lower batting averages on on these ground balls but what's happening is guys are just trying to elevate the ball more and it kind of comes out in the wash they just kind of beat the beat the shift anyway they hit into the shift more but then they also beat it uh with with higher quality uh batted balls when the shift is put on well alex uh, every time you put a research piece out you, you have a reader here because uh, i look forward to everything that you write it's so interesting it's so thought-provoking really gets the juices flowing uh, i really appreciate all your work in that regard i'll tell you what stand by for a second i wouldn't mind asking you about some players and stuff uh, we'll be back in just a second sure thing thanks Alex Chamberlain writes for Rotographs, and we'll be back in a second, but let me take a minute to tell you about BaseballHQ.com's First Pitch Forums Online. For the second straight year, BaseballHQ.com is inviting you to join Ron Chandler, Ray Murphy, Brent Hershey, and other HQ analysts for three fully interactive one-hour webinar sessions. For only $19, you get access to all three interactive one-hour sessions, where Ron, Ray, Brent, and the fellows will give you tons of March insights you can use for your drafts, secrets from this year's player pool, relief pitchers who could be closing by June, sluggers to worry about if the ball is de-juiced, the potential busts in the ADP Top 50, finding profit in some muddy playing time situations, 2021's new first rounders, and a whole lot more. Join Ron, Ray, Brent, and the fellows from 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Thursday, March 5th, that's this week, 
as well as Wednesday, March 11th next week, and Tuesday, March 17th the following week for virtual First Pitch Forums hosted by Shindig.com. Bring your questions and your comments because each session includes an audience Q&A. And if you can't join the sessions live, well, those videos will be also online for you to view on demand when you can, starting the day after each session. First Pitch Forums Online, three hours of invaluable insights that will make the perfect capstone to your draft preparation. And all three sessions, for you, just $19. First Pitch Forums Online, check them out at BaseballHQ.com. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part three of our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure once more to be joined by Alex Chamberlain from Rotographs. Alex, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Alex, you had an article at Rotographs about converting ADPs into dollar values for auctions. Uh, I've seen this done before. Uh, what was your take, and why did you go about it? I was actually inspired by Baseball HQ. I was inspired by the forecaster. I think there was a formula in there that um, that probably did almost the same thing that I did um, in terms of modeling those values. But basically, um, it's difficult. We have, we have so much data um, for ADP, for snake drafts, but we don't really have uh, an equivalent for auction drafts. And, you know, ultimately, because auctions are held at NFBC, we do have some kind of, of values for those. We can see the averages, but they don't necessarily translate, and every, every room is different. So being able to convert those values uh, the snake draft ADPs uh, into dollar values, and being able to do that across any set of ADPs, so whether you're using NFBC or whether you're using Yahoo, ESPN, Fantrax, whatever, um, you can have some kind of formula that you can apply to basically any set of data that will that will give you uh, an applicable uh, set of numbers. And I, I've been doing this for years for my, my home auction because I, I just have no way of gauging what the room might be like on any specific day or you know in any specific year so I, I like to have uh, some idea of what I know my opponents are looking at in terms of ADP and ranks and being able to translate to dollar values to have some idea of how much I think they might go for and obviously being flexible about it that's that's one of the biggest keys of an auction but um, but just kind of having that baseline beyond beyond just knowing the rank but understanding what each pick or rank kind of translates to in terms of in terms of dollar value. Well, as you mentioned, previous researchers, including at Baseball HQ, have determined what uh, many of us figured out, that when you graph ADPs against dollar values, it's not going to be a straight line decline, and that the falloff in value will be steeper at the start of the draft when you go from your Mike Trouts to your um, George Springers than it will be when you hit that big middle patch where there's a lot more interchangeability of players. I noted, though, that you described the curve as random but resembling logarithmic, and it's usually described as logarithmic. Why, why did you draw that distinction? Uh, just because you don't you don't go into a season and tell players that you need to produce value at according to a logarithmic curve, you know, it just kind of naturally happens that way. And I think that's that's just the distinction that I want to draw is that like players perform regardless of what we expect of them, or, or regardless of fantasy baseball in general. And when we kind of back calculate those those values, they end up looking like a, a logarithmic curve, and it just it just incidentally happens to to occur that way, and that's that's you know that's why a logarithmic curve exists. They call it a natural logarithm for a reason. So um, it's just a really nice coincidence that it works out so neatly that um, that that player performance follows 
uh, something that we see basically in other mathematical fields or other other areas of study outside of mathematics where a logarithmic curve might be applicable. So that's it's really just a semantics thing. Um, but yeah, player performance basically adheres almost perfectly to uh, a logarithmic curve. When Ron Chandler has back-tested the ADPs and, for that matter, explicit dollar values through uh, multiple auctions, he always finds that the correlation between where a guy went in his ADP at the draft is pretty weak to where he actually finished that same season, and it's especially weak at the top of the table. I think he says sort of in the first two rounds of a 15-round draft, there'll only be two or three guys who actually return that level of value, and most of the rest of them fall off for one reason or another, and there's always guys from the middle who climb up into the top that nobody saw coming. Given that the there are broad, fairly obvious inaccuracies involved, how can owners best apply their understanding of ADPs and dollar values to plan and execute draft strategies? That's a loaded question for sure, because um, everyone has their own opinion on how, how ADP should be used. Um, for me, uh, ADP, I, I, think, I think Vlad Sedler um, recently articulated it this way, and this is the way that I always articulate it as well, is ADP is like, uh, like going into a grocery store, a department store, and you, everyone has $260 uh, to spend at this grocery store. And every player has his own price. Um, if you walk into a store not knowing what the prices are, you're doing yourself a disservice because you are naturally going to overspend on a certain item. And maybe you'll underspend on, on other items as well. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, if you really love bananas, are you going to spend $10 on a banana when you can buy one for $0.29? Cents? Probably not. Uh, and so, so understanding the ADP is is really um it's really about understanding how you can leverage it to milk milk it for what it's worth in terms of uh, of draft equity if there's a guy that you really like let's say uh i love nelson cruz uh nelson cruz to me is a third rounder um in in most drafts he's going maybe in the sixth seventh eighth ninth round um I'm not going to draft him at the third round because I know that I can wait three or three more rounds. So I'm, I'm going to play the odds and I'm going to, uh, you know, draft an actual third rounder uh, and then see if I can wait until the sixth round and try to draft another third rounder who I think is Nelson Cruz. Um, it's not as simple as that. And, you know, you're not always waiting to play according to the ADP, but you know, it's more of an art than a science in terms of, of using it to your advantage. And that's, there's another uh, formula in the forecaster that is uh, a probability that a player might still be available at a certain round based on your draft slot or your, your draft pick or whatever. And I, I use that all the time, too, to, to have an idea of, based on his min, average, and max pick, know when a guy is – when I can assume he'll first go off the board, when he'll last go off the board, and, and the probability that he'll be available in any specific round – at any given time. It's a really beneficial tool. And if you haven't picked up the forecaster, I'm not getting paid to say this, but it was like a jaw-dropping moment when I was like, this is such a, a brilliant idea. Uh, it's so intuitive that I just, I, I'm kicking myself for not thinking of it first. Using something like that for ADP is probably the best way to use ADP. Um, but otherwise, what, what Chandler has found is exactly what I've found. ADP probably performs worse than projections. Like I think if you, if you used projections to build your rankings, you would perform better than ADP. Um, and I think that's just because ADP is, 
basically a bunch of people taking projections and then adding their biases to it, and our biases are what kill us. Uh, so, you know, it, it works sometimes, but it, it definitely doesn't work other times. And we fall victims to our, our own biases all the time. And the name of the game is to just eliminate those as much as possible or to, to overcome them, at least in, in some capacity. Well said. And I'll ask Ray Murphy to send you a check. Uh, it was a really good uh, recommendation. It is a tremendous tool. You're right. Uh, it really does work. It's it's an excellent tool. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Alex Chamberlain from Fangraphs, Rotographs. And uh, Alex, I'd like to ask our experts to talk about players they think will be boons and banes for the coming fantasy season. And maybe you can apply some of your uh, research or just your gut feeling or your biases, whatever you want. Let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest owners uh, in the American League. Who's a hitter who could be a boon in 2020? Yeah, so uh, uh, gut gut feeling is probably the best term for this, and it, this will involve some some manner of quantif- quantification too. But um, the boons are, you know, for me are are guys who are primarily lower ranked in ADP, but could could easily outperform. So I'm not going to really target the upper upper echelon guys, but a boon AL hitter uh, for me. And the more I come back to him, the more I am impressed by his breakout is Gio Urshela, um, who is projected to be the starting third baseman for the Yankees, which tells you a lot, like a lot, a lot, uh, given that they have Miguel Andujar, who had an incredible 2018, frankly, and that, that the Yankees are, are believing so strongly in, in Urshela and his 2019 breakout. Um, you know, I, I think it says a lot of things. I think, one, it says a lot about the Yankees, development uh, team. You know, I, I don't know what's going on over there. Um, turning Ursula and Voigt and Ford and Talkman and all of these, all of these guys into, into breakouts. Like it's, it, there's, there's definitely method to the madness that's going on over there. Uh, and I, I think Ursula, his, his, his breakout was so extraordinarily strong. It's one of those things where you can't, you, it's, it's undeniable how big of an impact, how big of a change that was like you can't fake it is what i like to say about about improvements like that you can't fake what ursula did his profile looks like francisco lindor and xander bogarts and he has the chance to be starting every day at third base and if he performs even close to what he did last year he's not going to lose that job and a guy who i can put in the same sense as bogarts and and uh and lindor uh is going to greatly interest me uh, and he's going in the mid 200s, late 200s, which is basically bench fodder in 12 team leagues and your corner infielder uh, in the TGFBI. Um, so I'm greatly interested in Ursula again. In my TGFBI league, Gio Ursula went in the 16th round, and I think quite probably it's because when we see that big of a change from previous performance, we in sort of intuitively say it can't be real. It's not possible this, that this is real. It has to be some kind of black swan event never to be repeated. And uh, like you said, I don't think that that's uh, exactly correct. Who's a National League hitter who's a boon for you? I'll just tack on to that really quickly. I think I always, I adhered to that kind of axiom for a long time, and I've started to relax that a lot because I think that my skepticism has cost me a lot of buybacks, <laughs> a lot of opportunities to buy back into guys who, who broke out. And I think Ursula is, is one of those guys where the numbers are, are so hard to fake. In the NL, my breakout hitter, I, I've got a few of them, but my primary one, if people are following me on Twitter, they know, is Josh Rojas. Um, his 
this is kind of like an Ursula thing, but in the minors, his breakout, it, it seems like it's really hard to fake, and, and the numbers were out of control good. Um, Dan Zimborski, who runs Zips, he said that uh, Josh Rojas had the best projection improvement of any player last year based on his 2019 performance. He's a guy who doesn't really have a clear path to playing time in Arizona, but I think he's so good that he forces the issue, becomes like a Jeff McNeil super utility guy, uh, plays, you know, five or six days a week, maybe not every day, um, and could st- could hit 15 home runs, steal 20 bases, bat 270, like just across the board, like a five-category guy, maybe even better uh, than what I described. I'm not going to get too far ahead of myself, but I think he could be quite valuable, and he's basically, um, you know, undrafted. I regret saying that, so I hope that no one in my TGFBI league is listening to this. Um, other guys that I like a lot are Trent Grisham, who I tweeted about today, or maybe yesterday, then J.D. Davis, uh, who is injured, maybe. Um, but of the Mets, J.D. Davis's numbers are out of control. I think if you guys are looking for, for middle, late-round hitters um, who could go off kind of in the way that Austin Meadows went off last year, um, Trent Grisham and J.D. Davis are guys you should look into. Over to the mound, who's an American League pitcher you think could be a boon? I'm not finding as much value um, in pitchers this year. I think they're actually pretty fairly priced, or maybe I'm just not as enthused about the crop as a whole. I'm always going to be enthused about Kenta Maeda. Um, that's just the easiest one for me to call. Every year he's underrated. Um, the, he got out of Los Angeles. I don't think the Twins are going to jerk him around the way that the Dodgers did. I think the Twins want to win, you know, and I think Maeda represents one of their better chances to, to win. And I think Maeda... You know, barring injury, he's going to uh, probably have maybe like one of his highest innings totals of his career. Uh, and I think, um, you know, if we're lucky, um, the secondary stuff comes together in a really great way because he has excellent secondaries and he's really good at limiting contact too. And it's just one of those rare combinations that we don't get to see enough of. Um, and because he's been getting jerked around, I don't think he's actually kind of like maximizing his potential because of his uncertain role. I think this is going to be a, a watershed year for uh, for Maeda. And in the National League, who's a boon pitcher for you? I hate that I'm saying this, but I think it might be Joe Musgrove. And, um, you know, we've been playing the Joe Musgrove game for like three years now. Um, and I think all the same caveats apply. I think there's there's really good secondary stuff there. Um, he's just, he just, he's exceptional at not reaching his potential. I think one of the most interesting things that I learned this year that, again, these are one of those things where you, you just got to be reading other people's work because you can't possibly catch everything. But Ben Clemens of Fangraphs, um, he noticed that, uh, Musgrove added like one or two ticks to his fastball. And in that month, his fastball recorded like a 12% swinging strike rate. So if Musgrove's velocity is, is you know, in the, the mid-93s to low-94s in terms of average miles per hour, um, we could be talking about the actual uh, legitimate breakout of Joe Musgrove um, in 2020. Um, I'm not really holding my breath, to be honest, um, but at his current price, which is, you know, at the you – know, just as like the your SP6 in a 12-team league, you really – can't make a better gamble than than Musgrove as the guy who rounds out your rotation. Um, I think someone who has legitimately more potential but kind of more obstacles in terms of innings pitched and workload is Julio Urias. I think this is the year. Uh, His metrics look so good. Everything under the hood looks exceptional. Um, And I think on a per-inning basis, he's going to be elite. He's just going to only get 
140 innings or something like that. I should say Stephen Nickrand, our fine columnist who covers starting pitchers, uh, pointed out that Joe Musgrove's second half last year was really terrific from a skills point of view. Alex Chamberlain's Boons, Gio Urshela of the Yankees, Josh Rojas of Arizona, but also a nod to Trent Grisham and J.D. Davis, Kenta Maeda in Minnesota this year, and Joe Musgrove in Pittsburgh along with Julio Arias. Now, uh, Alex, let's move over to the Baines. These are guys about whom you think owners should be cautious. And again, we'll start in the American League. Who's a Bane hitter? Uh, this is, this is tough for me. Um, cause I, I again, I, I think, I feel like the longer that we, we do this with, with better data, the sharper our ADP becomes. I think the community is doing a, a pretty good job at, at valuing players. But I think my big concern among AL hitters is Jose Altuve this year. Um, 2019 has some really interesting red flags. Um, one of which is his Babbitt falling off. And I think people, uh, see that and just kind of assume bad luck, especially because they see, you know, he had like a career year in power. Um, but really interestingly, um, you know, we're talking about the, the launch angle consistency, maybe being a leading indicator of decline. His just got blown wide open. I mean, he went from being about league average in, in launch angle consistency to one of the worst last year. And either that's a, bri- a, a byproduct of selling out for power um, or maybe selling out for power is a byproduct of him on decline uh, and, and, and making up for that decline. Um, so I, I think there's a couple of things in play, and I, you know, I'm not really sure what the cause and effect are, what the chicken and egg relationship is here, um, but he has me quite cautious, especially because he's not running anymore. I think there, we're either about to see uh, a sharp decline or we're going to see him revert back to his old kind of performance, which is more uh, batting average related, less power, but without the speed, that's a pretty mediocre profile for a guy that you're investing a, a second or third round pick in. In the National League, who's a Bane hitter? I I feel like this is unfair. Um, I think it's Tommy Edmond. I, I think a lot of people are are really high on Tommy Edmond, but I'm just I'm just very cautious about all the discussion around his playing time. And I, it's it's interesting what we do with this information. I think a, a lot of the times we we take it and we become really obsessed with that information, saying like, "Oh, Hyunjin Ryu is only going to play 100 or only going to pitch 150 innings. We got to downgrade him, uh, etc." Tommy Edmonds kind of getting the reverse treatment of his manager is on record of saying he's only going to get 450, 500 plate appearances this year, and people expect the cream to rise to the top. I don't think there's any contention in the cream rising to the top, and I think that's a fair assumption to make, but I, I'm inherently skeptical of, of that happening when the, the manager has been so forthright about kind of like his, his role with the team, whereas like last year with Jeff McNeil, you know, he was, he was in a utility role, and we kind of knew that going in, but there wasn't really any suggestion that they were going to inherently limit him. Uh, and I think with like Dylan Carlson coming up and stuff, I think we're walking a tightrope with Edmund a little bit. We're, we're, we're threading a needle and he's interesting to me, but he's not someone I'm going to invest in early, an early to mid round pick in, especially in a, in a deep league. It's a little too risky in a shallower league. I'm okay with it, but I just, I, he just, just something about this whole situation has me a little bit wary. Over to the mound again. Uh, who's an American league pitcher who could be a Bane? I have mentioned this a few times, um, but it's going to be Shane Bieber. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is this is the hill that I'm willing to die on this year. This is going to be make or break for me, I think, in terms of my, my league performances is we're looking at batted ball quality allowed, and 
and Bieber has been bad both years, extremely bad, actually. And uh, in, in 2018, he was really unlucky, uh, and we, we saw that play out in his ERA relative to his, his ERA estimators. The funny thing about that is his ERA estimators match his ERA this year, but if you look at it from uh, an ex-WOBA and an ex-WOBA on contact standpoint, he got really lucky, and that's because he he was still allowing hard contact but did not really have the outcomes to show for it. With two years in a row of that happening, it's really hard for me to believe that he is going to improve, one, in that, one improve in that regard, and two, for some reason to believe that 2019 is any more legitimate than 2018 uh, in terms of whether he deserves to be lucky or deserves to be unlucky. If you average those out, um, if you average both years out, he's right on the nose, and I think we're just watching the pendulum swing one way and back the other. And I think if he regresses toward the mean, we're going to see kind of a John Gray outcome in which his ERA might be half a run higher than his ERA estimators because they just can't foresee that he's going to give up such hard contact. I think he has his truthers. I think that sometime in the middle of last year, his pitch mix and kind of his delivery has mitigated some of those issues, but I'm not entirely sold on that, and I'm just – I'm just underexposing myself to Bieber. I love him, and he's he's a great pitcher, but he, he concerns me as a potential staff ace. And finally, a National League pitcher who could be a Bane. There's a few guys, and I think they're all kind of in the same class of pitcher. We're talking about like Brandon Woodruff and Mike Soroka and, and Max Freed, these guys who don't have a long track record, these guys who are maybe just being overvalued relative to guys who provide basically the same value later in the draft. Um, you know, if you want a Brandon Woodruff type, why don't you just take a Lance Lynn? If you want a, a Mike Soroka type, why don't you take Kyle Hendricks? It's just one of those things where I'd rather take the the tried and true guy who's done it so many times before and has really a similar skill set than trying to take the guy who is just a shiny new toy. I think this is just a shiny new toy phenomenon happening for these guys. Brandon Woodruff, I'm warming up to a little more. My first iteration of my expected con- my expected strikeout rate, excuse me, had him as the biggest overperformer. But since I've tweaked it, he's actually performed quite a bit better. But I still think there's some concerns there. His his fastball is really interesting, but he just doesn't strike me as having the upside that everyone else sees. But I, I'm willing to stand corrected. Again, I would rather just have Lance Lynn and and, and capture that same skill set essentially, um, even if his velocity isn't as like impressive or whatever i just you know again we're just talking about mitigating risk and and getting the best bang for your buck alex chamberlain's baines jose altuve of houston tommy edmund of st louis shane bieber of cleveland mike soroka brandon woodruff from milwaukee uh, alex tell our listeners where they can read more hear more stay in touch with alex chamberlain yeah, yeah. I, I write pretty much exclusively at Fangraphs at this point, um, unless someone approaches me otherwise, but I don't really have time to do anything else. So Fangraphs, uh, specifically Rotographs. Uh, and on Twitter, my Twitter handle is Dolph Haldhagen. That is D-O-L-P-H-H-A-U-L-D-H-A-G-E-N. I'm not proud of that. I never expected people to actually care about what I was doing, and I'm never going to change it. So um, that is that. Usually you can just find it by typing your name into the search field, right? Or maybe you could just type in Dolph, D-O-L-P-H. That's probably easier. Just search my name, yeah.
I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. We met in uh, Arizona at First Pitch Arizona in November. I asked you then if you could be on the show, and I'm so glad that it finally happened. This was incredibly interesting, incredibly informational, incredibly inspiring, if I dare say that. I hope we get to talk again. I hope so, too, and I really appreciate you having me on. I appreciate everything that you do. I, I love listening to this podcast, and I, I love Baseball HQ as an organization. So this is, this is a, one of those bucket list things for me, so I really appreciate it. Alex Chamberlain writes for Rotographs at Fangraphs.com. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 3rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 9 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our Tuesday tout for this show, Alex Chamberlain, who writes for Rotographs at Fangraphs.com. Alex is an absolutely first-rate, must-read fantasy baseball researcher and writer. And I think you'll agree, a big hit in his first appearance here at Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of the show. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher, iTunes, Pocket Cast, wherever you catch your pods, give us a review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners. It helps new listeners find us. And all of that keeps the podcast growing, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with a regular news and commentary edition. And then next Tuesday, when our Tuesday tout will be Ryan Bloomfield, speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Yes, plenty more fantasy goodness on the way for the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you Friday, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.